A Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Grant Hackett is one of Australia's most celebrated Olympians, having won gold in the 1500-metre freestyle race at both the Sydney and then the Athens Olympics. He dominated the 1500-metre event for a decade and is commonly regarded as one of the greatest swimmers in history. Outside of his achievements in the pool, Grant holds both a double degree in law and commerce and an MBA, is the father of young twins and is the CEO of the pioneering financial company Generation Development Group. Gosh, I've read oodles about you, mate, so this is not your first interview. How did you find the process of having to choose your five? Did you find it easy, hard, and without telling me the item yet, what was the one that you found most difficult to decide on? To be honest, I actually found myself thinking about it quite a bit, which I would would probably call it difficult because of that, Um, because normally things would pop into my head, you know, quite quickly and you Mm. sort of sorted that out and you move on. But in the case of this, not really, because when you've got to be talking about them, not just to yourself, but to an audience, you want to make sure they're five real things. Absolutely. I wanted to make sure they had some substance behind them. Um, The most difficult one actually was the location, because I got stuck on that for quite some time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've obviously travelled the world a hundred times, um, given my background and being in business now. So, you know, that's a consistent thing. So I've been to a lot of places, which I thought made it difficult, but I was looking at that the wrong way. So I eventually fell on an answer. Don't tell me yet. No, no, no okay. I'm not going yeah. to, don't worry. But I fell on an answer that actually felt 100% right when I thought of it. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the, the concept uh appropriately seriously because when people come in if they've done the work that you've done it leads to a really interesting conversation and we're going to yeah. start i mean laughing my ass off we're going to start with your <laughs> film with the uh, the highest grossing comedy of 2005 mm. uh, wedding crashes yep. tell me the story behind that um so the thing with wedding crashes was it's quite funny so i was in uh, i was in florida i was actually on a training camp um, when i first saw this movie and um, i was swimming really well back in that that particular point in time, and we had our world championships up in Montreal and Canada. So, this is uh, two thousand and five. Two thousand and five, yep. correct? Yeah. So this was about would have been June, July, two thousand and five, and you know that movie was out. Love Owen Wilson, love Vince Vaughn. So, of course, a few of the boys and I from the swim team, we went down to you know the picture theater and um, you know watched Wedding Crashes and didn't stop laughing the whole time. And then <laughs> next minute, you know that the whole time in that training camp or at the world championships, we're using all the one liners. Lock it up. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you lock it up. <laughs> So it was, uh, it was just such a good movie, you know. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me, you know. Like just all the things that we were throwing around at each other, you know, all the different rules throughout the movie. Yeah. It was just, it was just an absolute classic. So, and that meet, I think, for me and my swimming career was arguably my best swim meet that I'd right. ever had. Okay. Um. So I have this real po- positive connotation to it, and uh, you know, I got world swimmer of the year over Michael Phelps that year, and. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of good things happened. And, and funny enough, that movie, and still, still to this day, 
I talk about it with my friends right. and um, we always use one-liners. I mean, i got a friend just, you know, as late as probably two weeks ago who's just written me a whole heap of one-liners from that movie, you yeah. know, because he's a very jovial, funny character and very charismatic. So, you know, I still connect with that movie with so many different people and so many people in my friend circle um, or when we're out at dinner or we're, we're sort yeah. of spending a night out together. So, you know, for me, that, that movie has actually had, I don't know, a big impact, you could say, sure. in life because of... It lightens everything. And I think in a world where, you know, things can feel quite heavy and stressful and everyone's busy and everyone's feeling tired and exhausted, you know, when you use the one-liners in between your mates, they they, yeah. they pick you up a little bit. And that movie in particular is one we use a lot. I would have to say if I ever had to go through a transcript of all my text messages over time, mom, the meatloaf, yeah. and obviously the rest of that sentence is probably my most used <laughs> used text message. You know, so, so, so I'm very grateful to you that you chose it because I'd seen it at the time, but I, I, I hadn't sort of revisited it and I was laughing and wiping tears. But I tell you something, you couldn't make that film now. No. It's so incorrect, which yeah. is probably why it's so funny. You go, yeah. oh my, what? you can't say that. But oh. hey, they did. So your your film choice was comedy. We're going to move genres for your book. You're going to a thriller, yeah. uh, a book that's been uh, sold more than a hundred million copies. Uh, Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Uh, tell me the story behind that. Well, I had a lot of books flow through my head, and a, and a, a lot of books that actually had a lot more meaning or probably value in my life, but. This particular book, it was more the point at which I read it sure. that was of significance. So if I go back to when I read this book back in 2004, and there was obviously a lot of talk about it, so I thought, I've got to get my hands on this book. Everyone seems to be reading it and talking about it, so it must be good. It's like a good film, right? So I um, got my hands on this book, and it was in 2004, and it was a, a pretty rough year for me. Even though I won Olympics that year, it certainly wasn't smooth sailing. That was I your got- second gold. Yeah, my yeah. second, yeah, well, third gold all up, but second individual yep. gold there in the, the 1,500-metre freestyle. So I, um, I I was not feeling good that year because I got pneumonia at the, the start of the year from overtraining when I was a little bit sick and ended up in hospital. I then spent the rest of the year uh, training with this chronic chest infection, just coughing up stuff all the time. I actually went through 17 courses of antibiotics in between March to August when the Olympics Can't on. be good for you, can it? No, it's not good for your body. It's not good for your body, and... Um, I remember, you know, the the 400 meter freestyle day one. Really wanted to beat Ian Thorpe in that. Um, he beat me by a couple of one hundredths, just a touch on the wall. So I had a silver medal. I didn't go there for silver medals. We then came to the four by two freestyle relay a few days later, um, up against a great US team with the likes of Ryan Lochte, Michael Phelps, etc. Um, some real superstars in there. And this is when really Michael was starting to come into his own. We hadn't lost that relay in six years. We were the world record holders. We lost that by 0.1. Right. So it was a really, really tough, um, tough competition. And I was feeling that quite a bit. And and as you race through the Olympics, the emotional, the physical, the mental stress starts to weigh on you. I mean, this is something that's – the scarcity of the Olympics is what makes it so special. You can break a world record every day of the week. You get world championships every two yep. years. Commonwealth Games is obviously not the whole world. Then you've got world championships, which, of course, is a big meet, but the 10 out of 10 is the Olympic Games. And, and it's got that – that real, you know, history attached to it. It's got all the sports. It's got the the best performers of all time. So, you know, you go into that environment after four years of work. You race a couple of times. You feel the disappointment. You're you're fairly sick, and that was starting to to weigh on me quite a bit. And I remember getting to the the fifteen hundred meter freestyle heats and not being able to swim over the Russian swimmer who I who I stayed beside the whole way in the heat swim. Guy by the name of Yuri Prulikov. 
very good athlete, raced him for many, many years. And I just couldn't get over the top of him in the last 100 metres. And I didn't feel good. I finished that race. I was literally 30 seconds off my world record. 30 seconds? Which is basically, it's a lap out of a 30-lap race. And I felt like I almost, you know, I felt like I pretty much gave it everything. Yeah. And I remember doing all the interviews after the race and I remember slumping down into a big hump um, against the wall with my, you know, sort of head down, body language wasn't great. And um, I saw my coach and he kind of whacked me and he said, what's up? And I just said, it's over. I said, I'm not going to win tomorrow night. I have 36 hours until the final. And and I was really in my head and um, I'd written it off. And people often think um, elite athletes, when they see their great performances, that they must have felt confident and good and everything was perfect and aligned. Sure. It's not like that. It's rarely like that, actually. Most of the time you're overcoming some sort of adversity. And I had a huge amount of adversity with this infection, what I trained with, where I was at mentally. And anyway, I remember getting back to the village and just being in my head a lot and, and sort of a lot of, I guess, negative talk, self-negative ne- talk. And I basically, I got my hands on the the Da Vinci Code that I've been reading in bits and pieces. I mean, it's a it's quite a big book. Yeah. And I got to this point where anytime I got this, you know, sort of negative, you know, thought process going on in my head, I said to myself, well, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to win that race, whatever it takes. And that night trying to go to sleep, <clears throat> I just had, you know, so many thoughts racing through my head, the race strategy going through my head, this meet once every four years, two silver medals, haven't got a gold medal yet. I want a gold medal. I'd been undefeated for eight years in yeah. this particular race. So I um, got my hands on the Da Vinci Code and I would have read 75% of it that night and I fell asleep with it on my chest. Um, so it was probably the only thing that was going to put me to, to sleep and I, and I read it for a few hours that night. So you know, and the next day I, I got myself up to, to win that Olympic title. Yeah. Um, so and this is also, fantastic. So, so it was like a sort of a meditation type thing. It distracted yeah. you from all your troubles, some, yep. some you know, thriller story. You've got nothing to do with swimming, nothing to do with, no. you know, athleticism. No, and, and it's funny. For, for me, I read a lot of um, non-fictional books. So I read business books or I read things where I'm going to learn or, yeah. you know, things where I grow or, or learn things about myself, self-development books, et cetera. So, or biographies or autobiographies. So, it's not often I'll get a, you know, a fictional book and, and read it. So, to read it at probably such a critical time when I needed to be mentally focused, but it was the perfect, perfect solution for me at that time because it was something that I could escape in. Yeah. It was something so novel and, you know, there, there, there's just so much that goes on in that book that gets you thinking in probably a different world, a totally different paradigm that... Um, it escapes whatever you're going through. And I was going through some pretty big stuff at that stage. It's it's a stressful environment to be in. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to, to produce a, a result. And for me, in between that heat swim and in between that final, I remember it was the one thing I did to escape and it actually worked. That is such a, I mean, it's a wonderful story, but it's actually quite instructive. So sometimes it's doing, you know, it's not working harder on the stuff that you're working on. It's doing something completely different, like going to see wedding crashes or whatever else, you know, take a break. Absolutely. I think when you're an individual who's very, very focused on their goals and focused on the process, willing to do whatever it does take, to achieve that every single day, every minute of the day. In fact, I'm obsessive about it. That's yeah. that's my intensity of my focus. That if you know you're inclined to be like that, perhaps when you're actually in the moment of, I guess, execution or you're at the point where you can't do anything else, yeah. overthinking it's the worst thing you can actually do right. um, or overanalyzing it or intensifying your focus. So sometimes just to break that, 
give the mind, give the body, give the nervous system a bit of a sure. rest from what you're doing. And I think getting into something that's extremely novel, you know, you're still resting, you're still recovering from the heat swim, et cetera, and you're still yeah. getting prepared, but your mind, and the mind is such a, a powerful thing. I mean, what your mind can do to yourself physically and emotionally is is quite incredible. So I think um, if you know those things about yourself, you have to put in certain mechanisms to break it. And it's funny, I've never really thought of it until I've actually articulated these words today that yeah. seeing that movie, you know, doing relaxing things is healthy, healthy for you, obviously, but at the end of the day, doing them at those particular points in time wasn't really by design. It was more by default. Do you know, and, and for me, I mean, I've, I've never been within a country mile of elite anything, but to, to be an elite <laughs> athlete, um, it's always uh, amazed me where you train for four years, and as you say, no one, not many people care about the stuff in between. It's the big, you know, gold medal race, whatever. Um, if you fuck up the start... Or you slip, or something. You, yeah. you can't go. Can we do it again? You go. Yeah. That, that's it. Oh, it's done. I mean, how, what does that do to your head? It's um... so you'll still be the best swimmer in the world. But yeah, but you slipped in that one second, so yeah. you're not going to be recognised as the best swimmer. Well, how many athletes come and go in their careers, but are the greatest of all time? They're the world record holder. They're the very best, but don't actually win Olympic titles. That's right. There is a lot. I remember. Remember Mike Powell, who finished second to Carl Lewis twice in a row when Carl was in the middle of winning four Olympic straight yeah. in the men's long jump. So, but he was the world record holder, two-time silver medalist. Yeah. I had two silver medals that week. I was lucky. I got a couple of gold here in Sydney, but. For me, I wanted to win back-to-back 1500s, and yeah. I hadn't lost for eight years straight, but I could have lost on that day. I had a person from the US who ended up doing a 12-second personal best time, a person from Britain who did an 11-second personal best time, and he yeah. already did his best time in the heat um, the day before that. So I had some people you know, that were doing incredible things on that particular day, and I mean, the guy who finished second to me from the US, he he's a freak. I mean, this guy is one of the most high-achieving individuals you ever see. He actually went off... After the next Olympics, joined the Navy SEALs, became the chief and commander of SEAL Team 5, has studied at Wharton, you know, the School of Business there, and I think he got his MBA there. So, And he's been a very successful businessman ever since. So you talk about some of the individuals and their mm. mindsets that you come up against. I mean, it's quite incredible. So if you're not on that day, you know, that that zero, that one hundredth of a second, that zero one of a second or that tenth of a second is the difference between creating history and missing out on history forever. Well, listen, but I'm, I am thrilled because you're a lovely bloke that it worked for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. We wouldn't that. be talking to you otherwise. I'm, I'm happy. Probably not. That's <laughs> the thing. Life can be very, very different. Yeah. It's a sliding doors moment for a lot of athletes. Good I mean, on you. And that's why you feel for athletes that get beaten by drug cheats or, oh. you know, now are getting gold medals because they're keeping samples and, you know, obviously advancing the tests. Mm. And so they're able to capture things that they didn't know about back then. But, um, yeah, it must be difficult for people that actually never get to feel that glory who are actually entitled to it. But, you know, life's not always fair. That's the way it works. And, you know, on the, on the other way around, I also think that some people who who sort of luck out. Yeah. So, so maybe, I don't yep. know, the guy's number two and you're in the race, but 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 you break mm. your leg so he does it and he wins. You go, those are equally worthy as well because yeah. to get to be yeah. the number two, you've still yeah. got to be pretty bloody amazing, you know. Yeah, well, I think even to, to go to an Olympics or to, yeah. to go to a major international meet or represent your country in something is a, is a phenomenal feat. I mean, the human mind, as we were talking about before, it's the expectation side of things, right? So... For me, it wasn't about making a team. Generally, you'll see more emotion on pool deck for within our sport at an Olympic trials. Right. Because the Olympic trials is very cutthroat. Two positions, a qualifying time you go. If you don't, I'll see you at four years, see you in four years at the next trial. So most people are either devastated they didn't make it or just 
thrilled that they got the opportunity to go to Olympics. Not many people actually have a real chance of getting a medal or getting a gold medal. So, yeah. you know, it depends on where the mindset's at and what the ability um, supporting that can actually do. So for me, it was gold medals and silver medal is failure. Yeah, whereas for some people, it can be making the team or not making the team. So it just depends on your own expectation. But in saying that, it never takes away from the individual's achievement of, of what they've actually been able to accomplish. So I've got a confession is, is I, for the last 15 years, have done Bronte Swim Club uh, in the summer at the Bronte Beach Pool. Yep. And I have to do it with my kids as they're growing up. And I have come last in every race. Yeah. Every time. Well done. Someone uh, has uh, to. It's brilliant. The medley, <laughs> the backtrack, literally. When, when I do the butterfly, yep. I increasingly um, get lower. So yeah, at the I end, I'm imagine. crawling along the bottom of the pool. Yeah, so I can't yeah. actually do the stroke. Most people are good for two strokes anyway, so, but you sound good for one. <laughs> so it's brilliant. So, so, so my kids see that it's all right losing because that's all dad ever does. But <laughs> I, I dream of one winter yep. nipping off and seeing someone like you and training how to actually swim properly, yep. and then coming back and then winning all the races. And they go, what's happened to Nigel? Yeah, but anyway, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> we all have good fantasies, isn't it? Nice. <laughs> now, so you, you've got a bloke with quite eclectic tastes, mate, because your first two choices were very populist, mm. but your uh, song is uh, we're Into the World of Trip Hop, the English band Sneaker Pimps, mm. and you've chosen Six Underground. Yeah. What a song. Tell me the story behind that. It's... um. <sighs> The story probably doesn't have as much depth as you think. It's more, I love music. I was in a band when I was younger. I played guitar, I played drums. Lead singer or? No, 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 no. definitely not. A bit of backup vocals here and there, but uh, that's as far as it went. Um, so I've always enjoyed music. I love music. So that was probably uh, one of the more difficult questions because right. I had so many songs and obviously there's so many great songs over the the course of hundreds of years. So to actually choose one for an interview is quite difficult, but it's quite funny. I've loved that song ever since I was about 16 or 17. And I don't know, there's there's something about that no one really knew who they were back yep. then. No one really knows who they are now. And I played that song all the time and I still do today. And I think there's some of those songs that you always have on a playlist that seem to outlast time. I mean, a lot of songs that you have, you'll listen to for a few months and then you'll maybe walk away from it, you know, like Red Hot Chili Peppers is a classic for me. I'll always listen to their music a lot and I'll always come back to it. Yeah. Um, but that particular song, it's always a consistent song that if I ever just want to relax or chill out or feel grounded, I just put it on. And the words, I mean, 600 ground, I mean, that's got a, <laughs> yeah. that's not exactly an overly positive thing. This is a very alternative piece of music, but it's not really the words or the content. It's just the, the sound and the feel of that. And that's it's what I get out of it. It's very repeatable. I mean, so I've listened to it probably, I don't know, 25 times yeah. in researching this. Yeah. And it, and it it bears repeating. It's yeah. a fat. And, and my younger son, who's twenty, and he what's that, Dad? And yeah. so then he listened to it. It's just a a wonderful uh, sort of four minutes. Yeah. And and researching it, there's a yeah. brilliant story behind it. Do you know the opening uh, melody is actually sampled from the 1964 James Bond film Goldfinger? Oh, really? So when Sean Connery finds uh, the woman naked in bed, yeah. dead painted yeah. in gold yeah. the music that's playing then yeah. is the music that starts that song oh, and the oh, woman okay. who sings it Kelly Dayton who sang yeah. just an amazing video an amazing song the band fired her yeah. after she did and you go well, what are you doing she's, she's, she's what makes she's you it. brilliant <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and there's lines in it the, the guy who wrote it Liam Howe so it's actually it, it, you can put your own meaning on it it doesn't matter but yeah. the, the songwriter's intent yeah. it's about claustrophobia Okay. So he's saying it's about not being able to express yourself in a small town. Well, it's funny you say that because I was just, I was thinking to myself, it sounds like people that are trying to get themselves out of something. 
that's that's kind of what I thought because the whole six underground that's or it. something like that feels like something that you don't want to be found to be dead while you're living. Yeah. And I kind of always thought it had that insinuation or meaning attached to it, but I'd never really put much thought to it. I, You listening to it 25 times, you could probably articulate the words better than I could if we listened to it right now. The reality is for me, I've never intellectualized this song. Sure. So where obviously you, for interview purposes, yeah. you sit there, you analyze it, you intellectualize it, you look it up, where for me, it's a feel thing. Yeah. It's a feel thing. Like I sit there, I love the feel, like I'll put the music on when I'm having a shower, put the Sonos on and just listen and chill and relax. And it gets me into a certain mood that I like, that yeah. I feel good in. And that's why I love it. Yeah. I, and, and I, again, I'm grateful, like, like you getting me to rewatch Wedding Crashes, it's now on my list. Yeah. So, so I, I hadn't heard that song before. Yeah. Um, and the lyrics that there's, gosh, a couple of lines, which is, don't think because I understand I care. Yeah. Don't think because we're talking, we're friends. You go, ouch. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, it's, so it's, it, it really, uh, I'm, I'm very, again, very grateful for it to be brought to my attention yeah. because it, it's, it's, you can enjoy it on a whole host of different levels. You can. Once you actually, I think anything in life, whether it's understanding a person, a place, or, you know, what someone's experienced, I think when a, a songwriter actually puts something together, there is a lot of depth that goes yeah. into that. And that, that song is actually, I think the feel, the sound, and even some of the lyrics are so strong and have so much meaning. I think it's in quite a few movies because then I heard it up, I heard it pop up in a lot of movies. I'm like, oh, there's that song again. And there's Grand that song. Theft Auto, that they, they use they it. They use it? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a classic game. Everyone loves that one, don't they? So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big gamer, so I, I'm, not, I'm not too sure about um, those sorts of things. But I certainly know in movies that I, I hear yeah. it as a background song quite a bit because it has a lot of feeling attached to it and that's I, I love that. You know, there's some music and you li listen to like pop music or dance music or anything like that and it doesn't actually have any feeling to it. You sure. know what I mean? It's very empty. It might have a good beat or something like that but there's an emptiness to it. I think there's a real depth to that song and there's probably a lot of meaning once you do look at it like yeah. you have to understand the songwriter's perspective and what they're feeling and what they're trying to communicate as an individual and I think those things come up for me through that song. This is the five of my life. More in a moment. This is the five of my life. We're speaking with Grant Hackett. So I am loving your choices and we're going to leave England, thankfully, yeah. and uh, come back home. Yep. And your most difficult choice was your place. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you're very, very well travelled. Yep. And you've chosen your family home on the Gold Coast. Yep. Tell me about that. Um, it's funny. I mean, we bought this home back in 1988. I'm pretty sure it was. This so is mum and dad and mum you? Mum and dad. Yep. yep. Neville um, and? Margaret. Margaret. So, yeah, mum and dad got their hands on this place and, and it was quite funny. I remember actually when mum and I, we, we lived at Main Beach on the Gold Coast um, before this house and I went, she was dragging me around. I was, you know, seven or eight years of age. And I was just hated every house we went to. I didn't like it. And I'm a very honest, forthright person. So yeah. I would just sit there on the couch and I was like, I hate it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and mum was like, be polite, the real estate agent's here. Anyway, and dad was actually, dad's a policeman and he drove past his house with a for sale sign on it. And he had a look at it. And he said, I want you guys to go have a look at this house. I think you'll really love it. And it was on the water and, you know, it was close proximity to where we swam and to schools and stuff it, like uh, that. Ocean water or sort of uh, inland water? Yeah, inland water. In, yeah. So like the canal river system in there. And, Great. Uh, but it was still very close to the ocean as well. It was like walking distance from the ocean. So, 
you know, in terms of its location, it was fantastic. And I remember going in there and my brother and I and, and mum and dad, the four of us, we just fell in love with it. Um, just the feel of the place and just the whole energy when you walk into right. a certain place, um, you get that feel. And we just all got that feeling. We all loved it. We all agreed. It was probably the first time and only time in our lives where we'd all look at each other and feel exactly the same yeah. <laughs> about something and have exactly the same opinion. So, you know, and mum and dad still live in that house today. Right. Okay. So- They've had it for a very, very long time. They've obviously had it for three decades. So, um, and through my life over the past three decades, I've been through a lot. Yep. So whether it's been, you know, swimming success and and the heights of the Olympics or world championships, um, whether it's been going through a divorce, whether it's been going through public humiliation in the media, whether it's been you know, having a lot of success um, in my work or yep. in business, um, whatever it has been, every single high or every single low has brought me back to that house. Um, and when I'm on a high, it feels good there because all my friends come over. Sure. When I was younger, we were in the surf clubs and, you know, there'd be eight or nine cars out the front of our house, like literally all my mates, my brother's mates over, you know, they did board training out the back because of the water. And, you know, it was just always had this good energy. And, um I remember my brother, you know, he had all his Ironman mates there. He did the Uncle Toby Super Series. So, you know, we had Trevor Hendy and all these guys there for his 21st. And, you know, we've had so many great moments there. And then on the tough moments where, you know, something might have happened in my life yep. and then the media catches on and all of a sudden you've got this huge amount of public scrutiny. So um, it was kind of like this Switzerland for me. I would go there, the love of my family. I just felt safe. I felt secure. I just, I felt at home. You know, yep. I felt very grounded. Um, when I would be there because, you know, you go through those times and you go back into safety, you go back into what you know and, and that patch of land, that house is exactly what I knew and it made me feel good in a very horrible situation or it, or it made me feel okay um, sometimes at best. So, um, and you know, I've had all sorts of, I've had media out there because of controversy. Yep. I've had media out the front of that house because of, you know, success and, you know, it's, it's just been an interesting place. But for me, it has been that safe haven haven, or it's been a, a place of celebration. So I've had so many experiences um, there throughout the years that, and I love going back there. I love, I, it's funny. I actually, um, to be totally frank, it was funny. I, I have a house around the corner from there. I actually have my own house there. Right. <laughs> so, uh, um, but you I, prefer theirs. <laughs> but I always stay there. Yeah. So it's weird. They've got a granny flat out the front. So I, I often stay in there, but I've literally got a house that's walking distance from there, just around the corner on the beach, but I never stay there. I just like staying there. I mean, we don't know each other. <laughs> Uh, but I think it's uh, an enormous credit to Neville and Margaret mm. to have created that environment. Mm. So one of my dreams, I've, I've got four kids, yeah. is if I could have one of my kids talking like you've just talked mm. about my house, yeah. right, as in it's a place they yeah. want to go to, I, yeah. I would be in tears of happiness. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's, you know, you want to go and see mum and dad because you like being yeah. in that house. That's a real, that's what life is about. Yeah. So, so we couldn't be more different you are you are tall i am short you're successful i'm i'm a, I'm a non-end but we have one thing in common yeah we've got twins yep okay tell Good. me about the twins mine are identical two yep. girls gracie and evie but tell me tell me about your twins it's quite funny i i say i've got twins and i say i've got a boy and a girl 
And um, people go, are they identical? And I said, well, one's a boy <laughs> and one's a girl. <laughs> so, yeah, but do they look alike? And I was like, well, yeah, maybe a little bit, but they're not identical. Right. So it's funny how you get this automatic connotation. You hear the word twins, you go, yeah, they've got to yeah. be identical. But, um, yeah, they're, they're gorgeous little kids. They're, they're nine. Um, they're so different. They're so different. My, my little boy, Jagger, he is the most compassionate loving, caring individual I know. Right. It's it's funny. Um, you know, we went to Coles just on the weekend gone and, you know, he, he turns to me because he'll see homeless people outside of Coles. Yeah. And he's like, Dad, can we give him some money? And I said, mate, we're probably better off buying some food. But I know every single time we go, we're yeah. going to, I'm going to get that question because he just cares about people. And anyway, I had a little bit of money just sitting in the center console and I said, you can walk up and he put it in. And I, and I, Walked in with him to Coles and we were picking up bits and pieces, I think, for his school lunch. And, and, he, and he looked a bit sad. And I said, mate, are you okay? And he goes, oh, dad, I just feel bad because there was a, another person who was also homeless sitting down a little bit further and I didn't get to give anything to them. Right. So we have to make a point of going and giving some to them. <laughs> like he's just so em- empathetic and compassionate. It's, it's just beautiful to watch. He's a very sensitive little boy and he's just a good fellow. Like he's good fun and to Do they get around. on as, as brother and sister? They're, they're so different. So Charlie's is more the leader and, um, you know, she'll be a bit dominant over her brother and she's probably a little bit more inclined to be natural at sport. She's very right. athletic, very coordinated. You know, you, you show her something, she'll pick it up like that. Um, where Jagger, it takes a little bit longer. So they're, they're very different in terms of personality, but they do get along really well. So if we're going out, you know, to a cafe or something like that, a lot of the time I don't like them having my phone to play their video games or, yeah. you know, I put some mathematics stuff on there too. Occasionally they'll go into those, but that doesn't last very long. And um, and you just look at them and they're just playing with each other a little game or looking at people in the cafe and giggling to themselves. So they, it's funny how quickly they can come together. You can see that they've got this really, really interesting bond that most brothers and sisters wouldn't have purely because... You know, they're twins, but they're born at the same time. They experience everything at the same time. And, um, you know, it's it's a gorgeous thing to watch when they're getting along well. But they can fight like cats and dogs yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, my, my dear old mum sent me uh, a picture that she found. She goes through stuff in the attic. And it's a picture of my twins. And they're in the baby grows in, in the cot. It looked like, like chimpanzees in a cage, basically. Yeah. But to have twins... And and obviously it's just luck, but it's such a gift. Mm. You've you've got four trusting eyes looking. Yep. At, I mean, you'll you'll be a bloody giant to them. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're a giant I to am. me, mate. But you're yeah. a giant to them. They'll look up at dad, and, yeah. and you've got two eyes. You've got four trusting eyes looking yeah, at you. Correct. And you go, and it's instant family. Just yeah. add water. You go. You know, I haven't it got is. one. I've got two. Yeah, bang. Here they are. <laughs> I know it is. It's an instant family. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wonderful to hear. Now we're staying in Australia, and and you're. This is often my favourite item that people choose because it gets very, very personal. Yeah. Um, and the possession that you've chosen is your grandmother's emerald brooch. Yep. Uh, on your dad's side or mum's side? Uh, dad's side. Okay, so yep. describe it and tell me the story behind that, mate. I really hesitated disclosing this because it is so personal to right. me. Um, but I always think, well, if I say yes to doing these things, I should be completely honest and Thank say... You what is a prized possession? And if, if there is a possession, like I could have an Olympic gold medal and talk about a race or, you know, from a certain championship or, you know, a certain item at home or something that I grew up with that I've retained throughout the years. But this is something that's probably more special to me than anything. Um, so my grandma who, who passed away, uh, it would be, what, 20 years ago now. Um, it's funny, like, you know, you don't expect to be left anything as a teenager. And... I got this, you know, little box 
you know, it looks like an engagement ring box about that side and, and open it up and have this brooch in it. And so the brooch, you know, it's got two large emeralds in it. Um, it's, it's a love heart sort of shape and it's got all these sort of pearls around it. And it's, a, it's attached to, you can either wear it as a brooch or you can wear it as a necklace. And it's absolutely beautiful looking. Like it's just a stunning, fine piece of jewellery. And she had this note to it. And, and the note basically goes on to say, you know, look, we leave this for Grant because when he was young, you know, and it was about when I was at the age of five, he used to always go into my room and he used to take out all my jewellery and he always played with this right. every single time, which I did. I know I did. I obviously, you know, remember it even at that age. You have a feminine side. Yeah, well, I just thought it was probably pretty. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Probably pretty and valuable. So yeah. should I steal this from Grandma at that stage? Maybe <laughs> I was thinking that. Um, but I, um, and so she goes, we leave this for Grant. Um, he always played with it when he was younger. And um, he'll, you know, he should give it to his wife to be. Wow. Um, and if she wants to wear it, great. They might think it's a little bit old fashioned, but he absolutely adored it, and so did I. And so it was just a beautiful note. And I still Wonderful. have the note, and and obviously have the brooch. So, um, and I just remember, you know, I can actually see myself right now go up to their house in Brisbane. You know, you'd be playing around, you get a bit bored at grandma and grandpa, so I'd go into their room, start going through their stuff. And up in the jewellery blocks, I'm sort of looking at all the, you know, sparkly bits and pieces and I'd always get that out and I always thought, geez, that's that's really nice. And it's not like I wear jewellery or I like jewellery. Sure. I've never been one of these people to get piercings or wear more than a watch. Um, I don't have any rings or chains or anything on, but I just love that. I just thought it was a stunning piece and it's so funny because I would have thought grandma wouldn't have even recognised that, wouldn't have even known. Mm. And I got along with her really well out of probably the four grandparents. I was probably closest to her. I sure. just you know, to me, she had a very funny nature. She was very loving, very caring. She always looked after us so well, um, you know, when mum and dad would leave us there. So, and I just had this really nice relationship and I just can't believe she even noticed that because I used to put everything away as well, but obviously they pick up everything. And it's funny, if I think back to all the things that I played with in that house, the only one that I do recall is really that, even so, when so I got what, what, what a lovely story. Thank you for being so sort of uh, honest and, and vulnerable. It is, can I ask... Mm. Um, the note said for your wife, mm. but you've still got it. Yes. Did you say, oi, give it back, or did you never <laughs> give it to your first wife, or what, what, what's the story there? Uh, to, be, to be totally frank, you know, I, I, I did hand it across, yes. you know, but it was never actually worn or anything like sure. that, which, um, not that I want to sound horrible, because everyone moves their own separate ways when they, when they separate and go through a divorce, and we've certainly got kids together, so I, I certainly show her all the respect that she deserves, given that situation, but... It's not something that I would leave behind. Mm. And I remember when I did actually, you know, separate leave, I, I only packed three bags and, and literally left. And that was the last time I was in the family home. It was, it was quite an abrupt departure, so sure. to speak. But I don't think these things are ever easy. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people out there appreciate how difficult they are. Um, but it was certainly one of the things I got. I probably could have thought I could have left that between us, but... It is a possession that I, I probably care about the most over anything. If you ask me which one would I lose, one of my, my first Olympic gold medal or that, I would choose the Olympic gold medal every single That's day That's an of the amazing week. story. Mm. That is an amazing yeah. story. Mate, it's been just an honour to chat to you. Uh, there's one final question sure. that's becoming less of a surprise as the guests rack up. Yeah. Uh, but who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? That is a very, very good question. Um... You know who I'd love to hear? I'd love to hear John Howard. Right. Yeah, sure. Now, and why is that? <laughs> it's funny. I actually bumped into John on the street probably about two weeks ago. 
And I've always had a huge amount of respect for him. I mean, he was a great politician, a great leader within this country for 11 years. So, um, and I just think given someone who's been in that position and, and he was, he went through a lot of ups and downs, not so much through his prime ministership, but through his political career prior to that. And I just think, um, he comes across as such a, a decent man yep. um, and he always had the right intent. And the one thing, even if you didn't agree with his policies or with his views on things, he always stood by them. And a lot of politicians don't do that in this day and age. They're very politically correct or they're very populist or they, they move because they think the one thing they said is not going to be popular is the next thing they should be saying. And he never did that. So I had a lot of respect for him, even if I didn't agree with his, his point of view. So um, I think he'd have a very interesting story. He's a very interesting man. He's a very likable man when you meet him. And I think um, you'd probably get a lot out of it yourself. And I think the, the listeners would too. Well, we're going to give him a call this afternoon. Grant Hackett, thank you so much for being on Five of My Life. So, thank you. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Five of My Life on Apple Podcasts.